You're listening to Monocle's House View, first broadcast on the 20th of August, 2019, here on Monocle 24. This is Monocle's House View coming up today. Brexit has become a feeling-based political phenomenon. People feel that Britain has been missing out on sovereignty and they feel that it will be better of the EU. And the positions haven't really changed since the vote. The UK's mounting list of challenges concerning the practicalities of Brexit from keeping peace on the Irish border to maintaining medical supplies. My guests Terry Stiasny and Daniela Pallad will discuss this and the day's other news stories, including why were two US congresswomen denied access to Israel? And why is the issue now dominating the conversation in US politics? We'll also look at the issue of what to do with suspected terrorists and militants made stateless by having their citizenship revoked. Plus, while the results have stirred up some controversy in the scientific community, the findings ought to add momentum to the drive to clean up air in cities. More plants, fewer cars. A breath of fresh air from the Monocle editorial floor. I'm Daniel Bache. Monocle's House View starts now. Welcome to the show. I'm joined today by the political journalist and author Terry Stiasny and Daniela Pellet, managing editor of the Institute for War and Peace Reporting. We will begin in the UK, where British Prime Minister Boris Johnson has written to European Commission President Donald Tusk. Johnson's letter outlines why he thinks the idea of the Northern Irish backstop is unworkable, currently a central tenant in the UK's plan for its future relationship with the EU. So, is Johnson right? If he's not, the Irish border, along with recently leaked reports from the government predicting anything from food to medical shortages after the 31st of October, will be just one of the problems he and the UK are set to face. Uh, Terry, first of all, and totally putting you on the spot here, can you explain the idea of the backstop for our international audience? These things aren't always made clear. OK, I'm hoping I'm not going to get you know marks out of 10 for this. But essentially, the backstop is a way of solving what still seems to be an um, irresolvable conundrum in, uh, post, in Brexit politics, which is, on the one hand, uh, the Republic of Ireland is going to remain in the EU. There is a land border, obviously, with Northern Ireland, which is uh, part of the United Kingdom. Uh, and the Good Friday Agreement, which basically created a peaceful situation in Northern Ireland and the Republic, said there should never be a border, a fixed hard border between those two parts of the island of Ireland. Uh, so if you can't resolve this conundrum, you have to have some kind of other arrangements once Britain leaves the EU so as not to have a border, which means that either Northern Ireland or the whole of the UK would have to subscribe to the same rules as apply in the Republic, which are EU rules on, for example, trade and being part of the single market and the customs union. And many people, particularly who voted against Theresa May's Brexit deal, don't like that idea because, as Boris Johnson has set out in his letter, uh, it means that either part of all of the UK, if the Irish question can't be resolved, would have to still abide by EU rules and regulations. Hmm. Well, I want to come back to that letter uh, in a moment. But, uh, Daniela, to bring you in here, has Brussels and the European Union not been clear that this is a black and white issue? There, There is no negotiating here. But Boris Johnson uh, is is adamant that, that he will get some sort of compromise. No, of, of course not. I mean, they made it quite clear. Two and a half years of, of negotiations has brought them to this particular 
point and there isn't any room for manoeuvre. But Boris Johnson is in a uh, a particular position. So he's playing to his own constituency. And the fact is, is that uh, Brexit has become, well, more of a feeling-based, uh, narrative-based political uh, phenomenon. People feel that... Uh, Britain has been missing out on sovereignty and they feel that it will be better of the EU. And the positions haven't really changed since the vote, not not as much as I initially thought they would be. So the idea of uh, the idea of the European Union being unreasonable and being unwilling to negotiate any further, and therefore their intransigence leading us into this sort of chaos that uh, will follow, I think, inevitably, October the 31st, that doesn't harm him at all very much because mm. his constituency, that's the exact narrative that they subscribe to. Uh, Terry, I want to just come back to the, to, to Boris Johnson's uh, uh, letter here. What, what did you read into that and and, uh, and how he sees this issue? Well, I think he set out this letter with, you know, making lots of points, um, this letter to Donald Tusk, um, but some of them are, are frankly bizarre. I mean, for instance, one of the first points he said was um, the backstop was anti-democratic um, and inconsistent with British sovereignty. Well, that, you know, again, sort of depends who you who you think is, is voting for this and who, you know, mm. is it anti-democratic as far as the people of Northern Ireland are concerned? Is it anti-democratic as far as the people of the Republic of Ireland are concerned? It's saying it's inconsistent and it's saying the backstop risks weakening the Good Friday agreement which i find is is a really bizarre point to make given that you know the whole point of the backstop is to try and reconcile brexit with the good friday agreement and if you look at what's going on in northern ireland and we've had attacks aimed at police officers you know the situation in northern ireland is not very stable at the moment and risks uh, getting worse but the you know in summary boris johnson doesn't really propose to donald tusk anything you know anything very concrete he sort of says oh well we can have flexible and creative solutions to this problem that no one over the last three years has been able to solve it's kind of thing well by this point we you know we should have a clearer idea and and you've seen donald tusk's response just in a, you know a few minutes ago saying those against the backstop and not proposing realistic alternatives in fact support re-establishing a border even if they don't admit it. I mean, we're still very, very thin on the idea of what these so-called alternative arrangements or flexible creative alternatives are going to be. At this stage, you need to have something uh, because we've only got a matter of days left to try and work it out. Indeed. Uh, Daniela, I wonder if uh, in the general population and from Boris Johnson, uh, if the lack of understanding of the backstop issue and, and the nuances of Ireland and uh, the Northern Irish question are symptomatic of just the UK's lack of engagement with the European Union and its politics in general. Uh, I think it's uh, indicative of a sense of looming apocalypse, really. Uh, <laughs> <That> no, <too>. <laughs> <laughs> no one really knows what's going to happen. And the problem is, is that Project Fear didn't quite work out how it was supposed to. And people think, well, their life, life hasn't really changed very much in the last few years. You have all these stories. Well, you know, I, as I said, positions haven't changed massively. But I think uh, what will happen uh, in the event of, of no deal which seems increasingly likely, is that there will be some quite serious social consequences. If you think about how 
what a panicked state the British public get in when you know excesses of of weather of heat or cold you know if there's if a heavy snowfall means there are some shortages on the supermarket shelves we kind of go a bit bonkers really and the fact is that we don't have any resilience when it comes to these sorts of uh these sorts of social changes i think we we, we would get you people you get used to this very quickly but um i don't think we should underestimate what a sense of panic and a sense of uncertainty mm. will do to the British public. And that can be sparked by something, as I said, very minor, like the shoot food supply shortages, lack of fuel, and the knock-on effect in general life. I think we're just not prepared for that at all. Mm. Uh, Terry, I wanted to get your take on that, actually, on this uh, leaked report, which was said to be worst-case scenario, but we can perhaps say maybe it would be even worse. Uh, I think... Again, many of the things in that report aren't actually surprising to people who've been following this over the last few years. The idea that uh, there will be problems getting uh, fresh food, there will be delays in um, in the ports of Dover and Calais, there might be difficulties getting hold of uh, medicines and so forth. And it's the knock-on uh, impact of that. So the impact on fuel refineries, the impact on petrol supplies, the impact on all of that. And exactly as Daniela says, I think you, people have short political memories at the moment. And you don't have to go that far back to see the kind of disruption. I mean, think back in the the late 90s, the early 2000s, when you had uh, the BSE crisis and the ban on British beef and the impact that that had on farmers, when you had the foot and mouth crisis and the impact that that had in the countryside, and when you had a fuel crisis and you know a shortage of petrol. And people were absolutely up in arms about that. And we didn't have that kind of resilience. And if you imagine all of those things coming at the same time, you know, it may well be the case that the government is in a way trying to ramp this up so that if come the 1st of November, we can still go to the supermarket and get a banana, then we'll all think, hooray, this is fine. You know, this is actually not as bad as we <laughs> thought it might be. Um, but I think maybe they're not that as cunning as, as, as all of that. Hmm. But now we have even more uh, panic, Daniela, from, from travellers. Um, and now being told EU nationals that their freedom of movement could end right on November 1st. Yeah, I mean, this has already created a... Uh, a, a really unpleasant situation. I mean, you know, other parents, for instance, at my son's school, you know, typical London school, very multicultural, a lot of people, uh, lots of European citizens. And they, over the last, all of, pretty much all of them are talking about having to find another place to live or going, you know, what supposedly would be called home. They don't want to, but there's this sense of... There's a sense of, of, of kind of amorphous threat as well, where they don't feel welcome and i've been told by numerous people not to be out of the country at all uh, even though i'm a british citizen around the time of brexit mm. uh, we, we're not prepared we're not prepared in any way and it's this the sense of uncertainty and the sense of not knowing what happens next that in itself has a, a momentum of its own and it's a very dangerous momentum terry how long can boris johnson keep up the politics of this and the the image and and rhetoric of everything will be fine I think it's interesting that we're seeing him him this week planning to go to meet the other European leaders uh, on their own territory rather than, you know, I think we were initially given to understand that he would sit back and wait for them to come to him. Uh, that's not happening. So he is obviously have to, having to go around. He's had a long conversation with the Irish teacher, Leah Varadkar, already. He's going to meet uh, Merkel. He's going to meet Macron ahead of the G7. So he is having to make 
some moves. I mean, as we've seen with Donald Tusk, they've not been hugely well received at the moment. And then uh, the British government's kicking back and saying that Tusk's response is an overreaction and that the others are unwilling to be reasonable. Uh, so he may well be told, you know, look, there is no deal to be done here. There is no reopening of the withdrawal agreement. Um, the question is then whether he feels pushed into... Uh, giving more ground or whether he's going to stick to this line that says, you know, Brexit comes on the 31st of October, what, whatever happens. And it's, mm. it's going to be quite hard for him because that's been the defining thing of his prime ministership so far to say that's, that's what's happening. Terry Stiasny and Daniela Pellet here with me, Daniel Bache. We'll be back in just a moment. But first, here's Monocle's Yolinga Fan with some of the other stories we've been following today. Thanks, Daniel. Russia has accused the United States of stoking military tensions by testing a cruise missile. The Pentagon has confirmed it successfully tested the ground-launched weapon yesterday. This is the first time the Americans have tested such a missile, since formally withdrawing from a landmark nuclear treaty with Russia earlier this month. Michael Clark, former head of the Royal United Service Institute, think tank here in London, spoke to Monocle24 about the issue. Even an arms control treaty that isn't working very well is usually better than one that isn't there at all. And so there is a sense that in frustration, the Americans have said, right, we're out of the treaty and the treaty has now collapsed as of uh, earlier this month. And so in a sense, the brakes are off. And the Russians will now just test openly what they've been doing secretly. The Americans will test openly and the Chinese will just carry on testing as they were. So this is, a, is a, now a three-way arms race in cruise missiles, mainly between uh, America and China, but also, uh, as it were, as in, incidentally also between America and Russia. Hong Kong's leader Carrie Lam says she hopes peaceful protests can restore calm and bring about dialogue with the city-state pro-democracy leaders. It's estimated that 1.7 million people took to the streets at the weekend to protest against the erosion of civil liberties in Hong Kong. And Indian officials say the country's second lunar module has begun orbiting the moon. The mission, which is costing around $150 million, will be the first to land on the moon's south pole. India's first lunar mission was launched in 2008, but it did not land on the moon's surface. Back to you, Daniel. Thanks, Yolene. This is Monocle's House View. I'm Daniel Beige. Still with me are Terry Stiasny and Daniela Pellet. Ilan Omar and Rashida Taib, the U.S. Democrat congresswoman who were recently refused entry to Israel, made further comments about the matter on Monday. Both have shown support for the Palestinian-led boycott movement of Israel, and the two politicians had been aiming to visit the Israeli-occupied West Bank. Well, on Monday, Omar suggested that President Donald Trump and Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu were to blame. Here's a little bit of what she had to say. We have a responsibility to conduct oversight over our government's foreign policy and what happens with the millions of dollars we send in aid. So I would encourage my colleagues to visit, meet with the people we were going to meet with, see the things we were going to see, hear the stories we were going to hear. We cannot, we cannot let Trump and Netanyahu succeed in hiding the cruel reality of the occupation from us. Uh, that was um, Ilan Omar speaking yesterday. Uh, Daniela, I want to uh, first just start with you and uh, hear about what is really happening in this uh, in this political fight, because it's not going away and nor should this issue, but uh, it's it's being escalated even more in the media now. 
Sure. Uh, what's what was uh, unusual about this is that, that the intervention of, of apparent intervention of President Trump, because uh, the Israeli government had taken the decision to allow the the women into. Uh, the West Bank. Obviously, the only way you can get to the West Bank is via Israel. Israel con- con- uh, controls all the borders. And Israel's made it clear that they will not allow entry to people who prominently, actively support the boycott, divestment and sanctions movement. But President Trump intervened. And so they denied them the entry, which uh, speaks to a couple of, of uh, precedents, really, which is... Uh, President Trump enjoys intervening in other people's uh, politics and has done so quite successfully. And, and also the way that Israel uh, has become from previously a bipartisan uh, issue, supported and important to both the Democrats and Republicans. Now it's being used as a, a wedge to um, drive, you know, to, to uh, make political points with, hmm. with Democrats quite clearly. Uh, and Terry, what have you made of uh, this issue? Uh, Netanyahu has uh, been quite clear in his stance as well, but uh, him and Donald Trump are staunch allies, but uh, now uh, these two Democrats uh, fall in the middle somewhere. Well, I think uh, part of the problem with this, obviously, is the refusal. And we've heard from Donald Trump from his earlier tweets when he's talked about you know these two women and other congresswomen and you know telling them to effectively go back to where they came from, despite the fact that they're American citizens, that they're elected American representatives. And part of the problem here is this refusal to see them as congresswomen and as Americans first. So it's he's trying to, they're both trying to reflect on, you know, the backgrounds, the ethnicities of, of these congresswomen and saying, well, you know, that somehow makes them a, a special case and that we're, we're entitled to intervene in where they're allowed to go. And I can't see him doing that with, you know, other elected representatives who are, you know, American elected officials who should be able to, you know, go wherever they would like to go without sort of fear or favour and, and, you know, subject to all the normal protocols and all the normal respect uh, that they would be given in carrying out those investigations. You don't have to agree with everything they've said about the situation in the Middle East to say, well, they should be entitled to, to go and see the situation on the ground. Hmm. Uh, Daniel, what is Israel's prerogative in this? Because obviously uh, Trump has intervened, but they could have denied access uh, should they have wanted to. But now with the American president getting involved, how how much does that complicate things? Well, in addition, you know, first start the the law that means that Israel can deny access to people who support BDS is. Uh, very hard to enforce and completely arbitrary. And one another one of the issues that chips away at it's already uh, perilously threatened democracy. I mean, of course, a country has got the right to choose who uh, they allow into their territory. But this is policing people's thoughts as well and their political views. Uh, Israel has the law of return, which means that anybody with a Jewish um, parent or grandparent can move to Israel and become citizens. However, if you have a Jewish person who supports boycott, divestment, sanctions, as quite a lot of Jews, although it's still a marginal movement, people do, that would mean that they would then be denied citizenship, which uh, is against the whole principle of Israel's founding as as a safe place for the Jewish people. And then what do you do when somebody, a prominent political figure who supports BDS, then wants to make a a visit? Then it begins to harm your international relations. Again, it's another populist movement. I think it's quite, uh, it's it's very well supported within Israel where BDS is seen as, as an existential threat, even though it hasn't made much 
actual impact uh, politically or diplomatically or economically. So it plays very well, again, to Netanyahu's constituency, um, but it's, it's quite unworkable, really, and has allowed uh, Donald Trump to intervene successfully. Uh, indeed, and one to watch uh, as uh, we question uh, how much longer Mr. Netanyahu will be in power in Israel. And as I say, we, we will continue to watch that story. But I want to make sure we have uh, time just for our last topic here today. Uh, British-Canadian men who joined ISIS as a teener, teenager, rather, Jack Letts, also dubbed in the media as Jihadi Jack, has had his UK citizenship revoked by the Home Office. Letts traveled to Syria to join the terrorist organization and was captured by Kurdish forces back in 2014. The issue has now become a cause for concern in Canada with let's dual UK-Canadian citizenship, meaning the government of Justin Trudeau now has to deal with a terrorist with no state to return to. Uh, we'll get on to that, but first let's have a little bit of a listen to what Justin Trudeau had to say. The Minister of Public Safety had uh, addressed these questions yesterday. What I will reinforce is that it is a crime to travel internationally uh, with a goal of supporting terrorism or engaging in terrorism, uh, and that is a crime that we will continue uh, to uh, make all attempts to prosecute to the fullest extent of the law. Uh, that is the message we have for, for Canadians and for anyone involved. Uh, Terry, it is my reading and my understanding that a, a person cannot be made stateless. So is this all on Justin Trudeau to fix? Well, part of the, yeah, the problem with this, uh, obviously lots of different problems with it, but partly it creates two different classes, effectively, of people, say, who've travelled from Britain to to go and fight in, in Syria. And there's a class of people who've only got one citizenship, which is British, who can't have their citizenship taken away. And there's a class of people who've got you know, some other heritage or right to dual citizenship who therefore can have their British citizenship taken away. And this has not only affected Canada, this has affected uh, other cases as well. So there was a case of one other fighter who a woman, I believe, who ha was entitled to Bangladeshi citizenship, had never used it, mm. but this this you know problem was then put onto onto the shoulders of, of Bangladesh to deal with. Now Canada is kind of very gener generous with its citizenship. If you're you know you're entitled to it fairly easily, and and they don't take it away uh, easily. And um, but I think it's yeah, it's it is Britain sort of saying, well, there's there's two different types of people here. There's you know, people who've got some kind of international background and we can deal with those differently. And and then you're saying yes to other countries, whether those be Bangladesh or Canada, this is on you now and we're getting rid of it and we're, we're trying to push the problem somewhere else, which I think seems unfair. Well, interestingly, uh, Daniela, Trudeau is set to meet Boris Johnson at the G7 summit in Biarritz at the weekend. What could they possibly discuss? That would be an interesting one. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is... Uh... Uh, this goes far beyond just the sort of bilateral uh, relationship or discussions. I mean, in general, Britain has not done very well and not been very uh, reasonable when it comes to this issue, which is, by the way, obviously, is faced by many, many, many other countries. And this is kind of uh, exceptionalism for uh, for Britain thinking, oh, we're just going to deal with it this way. Other countries are also dealing with it in a much more uh, thorough and, and thought through manner. And they are accepting the, the former jihadis back and either rehabilitating them or imprisoning them. It's quite simple. Rather than just saying we have no responsibility and, again, this is another populist move, we'll just take your citizenship away. I mean, for instance, Kazakhstan, which at a conservative estimate had maybe 800 people travel 
uh, to Syria and Iraq to fight has brought the majority of them back. You can look at other Central Asian countries and other Middle Eastern countries. They are having to deal with it. And uh, what we should be doing is sharing best practice and seeing this as a, as a as a global problem and one that's not going to go away. And said Britain is saying, well, OK, we can just take citizenship away because our tab- the tabloid le- will report that favourably. Hmm. And that is no solution. Daniela Pellet and Terry Stiasny, thank you both. In a moment, the importance of air quality to the healthy functioning of a city. You are listening to Monocle's House View. Stay tuned. The Briefing, the news show that quizzes, probes and debates the news every day, just got bigger and better. Now, in a new packed one-hour format, The Briefing goes beyond the latest Twitter storm to report on the stories that are shaping your day. You need to make it a daily appointment. Hear The Briefing live on Monocle 24, Monday to Friday at 1300 in Zurich, that's noon here in London, or download and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This is Monocle's House View. I'm Daniel Bache. Finally today, Monocle's editorial team looks at how the wind is increasingly changing when it comes to the importance of clean air in our cities. There is a multiplying list of worries when it comes to the environment. With deforestation, climate change and ocean plastic to name a few, it's difficult to know which concern to wring one's hand over at any given time. One problem in the ascendancy is air pollution in cities. It's a sign of the times. Our transgressions against nature aren't being felt just by squirrels and sea turtles, but by residents in wealthy cosmopolitan capitals. While the physical risk of living in some built-up areas apparently equates to smoking a packet of cigarettes every day for 29 years, there is another, more subtle problem connected to low air quality. According to new findings published today, bad air could be associated with higher cases of mental illness, such as bipolar and serious depression. Examining populations across the US and Denmark, the study found that exposure to polluted air during the first 10 years of a person's life particularly in Denmark, led to a twofold increase in schizophrenia and personality disorders. While the results have stirred up some controversy in the scientific community, the findings ought to add momentum to the drive to clean up air in cities. More plants, fewer cars. And that's all for today's programme, Monocle's House View, produced by Tom Hall, our studio managers, Steph Chungu and David Stevens. Coming up later on, a brand new edition of Monocle on Design. And Monocle's House View is back at the same time tomorrow, 1800 London time. I'm Daniel Bache. Thank you so much for listening and goodbye. <laughs>